welcome back to Amy Lunaland. I'm so happy that you've returned. So I was asking my friends about the first podcast and what they thought and asking for feedback, because that's how you get better. And my one friend remarked to me, you know, you sound so happy and joyful. And of course you are, but I know your history. And people that don't know your history might not realize how much you've overcome. And maybe you should let them know. That got me thinking, her comment, because I started to think, well, that's interesting that we assume if you've had challenges or hardships or violations in your life, that that precludes existing in a state of joy. (laughs) That people would automatically assume because I'm happy and joyful, that means that I must be naive or I've lived a pampered life or a privileged life of some sort. Yeah, that's not the case. (laughs) However, I have worked my way out of that into a place of reasoned joy. Not naive joy, but reasoned joy. And that is what I want to share with you. How do you make that journey? And I know that is not the norm in our culture, because I am constantly misinterpreted by the two sides of the black and white binary thinking. For example, if I'm joyful, people assume I'm stupid. And if I express my intelligence, people assume that I'm mean or I'm going to be threatening. (laughs) When you think about it, we don't really have a model for reasoned joy, intelligent compassion, heart, and mind. And so if you're here, I'm going to assume that you're a different kind of person. You're a person that thinks, yeah, I think we can combine intelligence with joy. I think we can start normalizing that, actually. Let's do it. That's Amy Lunaland. So we tend to hear amplified the voices around us, the two extremes, the two polar extremes of any issue. Duh, that's not news to anyone who's been paying attention. But if you're like me, you listen to one side and you say, yeah, I don't think things are that cut and dry. I think they're that absolute. And then you listen to the other side and you think, yeah, that's doing the same thing. So all of us are sort of holding our noses and going with one or the other. Because you kind of have to. Because you have to choose between this black and white absolute binary. I'm always fascinated about binaries. Anytime I hear a binary, I always think, hmm, how can we balance that? So, for example, one really common binary is the problems are all out there. Everything is happening to me. And the other absolute end of that spectrum is, no, no, I have complete and total control over my reality. You know, whatever happens to me is my choice. I've brought that reality into my world. Now, I'm looking at both of these and I'm thinking, well, I don't really agree with either of them, but I do agree with parts of them. I think there are some things I definitely create for myself that there's a me factor involved and I need to take responsibility and be accountable to myself. That is definitely 
Some things happening out there that are definitely a threat to my person and dignity. And I want to create a world in which we agree that those actions require responsibility and accountability. And that's a process as a culture. We're constantly improving that. Uh, Things that weren't illegal just, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, we see today as clearly human rights violations. So we do evolve as a society about what we think people have responsibility and accountability for. But what I'm going to talk about today is how to discern the difference. So here we go. The first perception we have to have is that there is a need for balance to even realize that there's a question to be asked, which is, okay, my body is perceiving a threat. My body and mind are perceiving a threat. How much of that threat am I creating and how much of that threat is real? So we have to remember to ask that question because we could just say threat and just respond to the threat. (laughs) So there's an extra step in there. So it's sort of like, something's wrong. Okay, wait a second. How much of this wrong am I creating and how much of this wrong is actually happening right now to me? That's the first thing. We have to say, I'm going to adopt a perspective of balance, which means I'm going to balance what about this is internal and I have control and responsibility and accountability for and I'm empowered to change. And what is external In which case, that's a whole other set of strategies, which we'll talk about in future podcasts of how do we, as a culture, set norms to reduce these threats, to dial down the temperature. But first, we're going to learn how to dial down our own temperature. When I was living in Alaska, I spent six months in Alaska, one summer, one glorious summer, I learned about grizzly bears. If you're going to spend time in Alaska, you better learn about grizzly bears. So I actually went up to Denali National Park, and there was the grizzly bear expert park ranger. I mean, this ranger knew everything there was to know about grizzly bears and how to be safe as a hiker. And so I went to the source and I listened to her presentation. It was maybe like, I don't know, an hour. I learned all about grizzly bears and how to protect yourself. There's ways to work with the grizzly bear. I mean, when you go on a hike, you're going into the grizzly bear's home. That's their front yard. But you're sharing with them. So you want to respect that. And, you know, there's things you can do. You can talk, you can make noise, you can, if you do see a grizzly bear, you know, you don't want to run away and you want to make yourself as big as possible. And you learn to carry bear spray in case all else fails. What you learn is that grizzly bears, I mean, they do not exist to kill people. We're not part of their food chain. But they will attack if they feel attacked. And that is so true in the world. We look at people who are attacking us and it doesn't occur to us, well, maybe I unintentionally threatened them and they're responding to my threat with a defense. Is that an attack? 
Or is that a defense against a perceived attack? Hmm. Interesting. And some of us have so normalized our own attacks that we don't even hear them. So other people are defending against our attacks all the time. And we're like, whoa, why is everyone attacking me? <laughs> there are threats to your safety and well-being in the world. But here's the different categories of threats. There are internal threats you are creating in your own mind. Now, what are some reasons why you might be creating threats in your mind? Perhaps you have had a previous experience that looks really similar to this experience, and that experience was a threat. So let's say you were once in a tornado, and you did a Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz thing, and you were flying around in a house, and it was terrifying. So the next time you see storm clouds gather that remind you of that experience where the air smells the same, the wind's picking up, you start to have a confirmation bias. Oh my gosh, this is a threat because of your previous experience. So that's one example. And that's a good thing. You know, we bring our knowledge and experience. Wow, this seems like a tornado. I'm getting in the cellar, the root cellar, if you're on a farm. So that capability to recognize situations that look similar to previous threats and take evasive action before a threat begins is a really good skill. But it's not always accurate because sometimes those storm clouds might gather, that wind might kick up, and there might not actually be a tornado. In fact, that might just be some rain for the crops, which is going to help sustain you. The second reason we might perceive a threat is because our culture has seeded us to see certain, certain things are threats. So I'm a scuba diver. I scuba dive. I actually have a rescue diver certification. And so I've done a lot of scuba diving. And I've actually scuba dived with sharks. And every time I tell someone I scuba dive with sharks, they're like, sharks? You scuba dive with sharks? Oh my God, they're so threatening. The amount of humans killed by sharks every year is infinitesimally small compared to the amount of sharks that humans kill. Like humans are literally hunting sharks to practical extinction. Because there's some shark soup over in Asia that people need to eat every time they have a birthday or a wedding or something. Shark fin soup. So they're killing all these sharks. Many species of sharks are totally fine to scuba dive with. And amazing and miraculous. So our culture will seed in us that certain things are threats that may or may not be threats. And when you bring that previous assessment, oh, this past thing was a threat, so my current thing is a threat, that's called confirmation bias. Meaning you have a bias to confirm your previous experience. You walk into a situation with a preconceived bias, and we all do it. And like I said, it's part of our survival strategies to do it. And then our culture programs us with certain things. So we can sort of think for ourselves and say, well, I don't know. I mean... <laughs> I scuba dived with sharks and they didn't kill me. I know a lot of people that have scuba dived with sharks and they didn't kill me. Maybe sharks aren't that bad. In fact, maybe we're the ones that are threatening the sharks. Maybe the sharks are just defending themselves against a perceived attack. Maybe the sharks are just being sharks and it's our responsibility to learn the nature of sharks so we can be safe around them. So that's the kind of things that we need to be on the lookout for whenever we sense a threat. It might be just a threat created in our mind, or it might actually be an external threat. 
meaning there is something happening externally to me that is an actual threat. Prepare and dare. That's one of my life mottos. Educate ourselves about the threats. And I think that is one way we do a disservice to each other. Again, with a binary, we either say, oh, there's threats all around us. Every time you encounter this situation, it's threatening. Beware. Or we just say, no, 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 no. There's no threat here. What I'm doing that appears to be a complete human rights violation is not actually that. When really, it's contextual. Okay, I've been trained to learn that this context may be a possible threat. I'm going to wait for additional evidence before I determine that it is a threat. Or I may even seek evidence. I may seek to get more information about this situation to find out if it is a threat or not. Because I'm allowed to ask questions. I'm allowed to say, are you meaning this to be a threat? Because that's how I'm perceiving it. And then if it's a person, they can say, no, I'm not meaning it to be a threat. In which case you can say, well, let me tell you my experience because I'm experiencing it as a threat. And I've thought about it and I don't think it has to do with my past and I don't think it has to do with my culture. In fact, I don't think I'm overly sensitive here. I think perhaps you are desensitized to something that you're doing and how it's affecting other people. When people say to me, oh, you're too sensitive, that's not a threat. I think, well, that's one possibility. Another possibility is that you are desensitized to the fact that you are appearing threatening. And why might people be desensitized to their own threatening behavior? Well, perhaps you've been around that threatening behavior so much in your life that you've normalized it. Perhaps your culture has normalized that threatening behavior. But it is threatening behavior. You know, one example, I love to use the example of smoking. Smoking was something that in my lifetime, everybody did. People did it in public spaces. It was just such a norm. It was not seen as a threat to the health of the people around you at all. And if you were a person that said, no, that is a threat to my health and well-being, secondhand smoke is very damaging, people just thought you were crazy. People would gaslight you. What a party pooper. What a killjoy. You can't tell me what to do. You're too sensitive. And of course, as time proved, there was a lot of people profiting off of giving us the wrong information there. So that's why this has to be a negotiation, particularly when you're dealing with other people. Hey, uh, do you mean this to be a threat? Let me tell you how I'm hearing it. And you have to be willing to hear the other person's experience. That's why it has to be a negotiation. First, you communicate with yourself. Okay, self, what is going on here? And one way to know if you're bringing your past into your present, overfeeling. If you feel like you're getting really upset over something that just happened and the situation was not really, you know, didn't require that quite intense of a fight or flight survival response, that is a good indication that this isn't about what's happening right now. It's about something from your past. And that's why, you know, I talk about head and heart, but they're so interconnected. What your mind perceives your body responds to is a threat. 
or what your body has normalized as a threat, your mind will then believe as a threat or frame as a threat or conceptualize as a threat. That's why it's so ridiculous to separate them because they work in concert with each other. They work together. When you notice that you're overfeeling, like you just go from zero to 60, you flash. As my one girlfriend used to say, I flashed. You could say, okay, before I respond to the person in front of me, or rather before I react to the person in front of me, let me look at my own response here. So I can respond to them instead of just reacting. And also, let me think about what my culture has taught me. Is that is my experience really playing that out? Is the evidence supporting that? Is the evidence in this situation supporting what my culture has told me is a threat? Am I bringing a me factor into this? Is there something I did that appeared threatening or violating the rules that we've all agreed on? Maybe there's a set of rules that I've... Okay, here's a good example. So I'm traveling in Tunisia with my Tunisian lover at the time, which we were not allowed to tell anyone because Muslim men are not supposed to be having premarital sex. I was there for three weeks and about a week and a half into it, because when we're out and about, I'm I'm literally the only woman. There are not a lot of women in public. All the tea houses are all men. This was, I should say, early 1990s. I was sort of noticing that the men were looking at me in a certain way because I was just observing my surroundings. I mean, I travel a lot. I've been to a lot of different cultures, countries. I've had an international career as an artist performing on stages all over the world. And so I'm very used to, okay, I go into a new culture. What are the norms here and how can I respect them? And so I thought to myself, you know, I was wearing tank tops and I noticed that the women had their shoulder, at least their shoulders covered. I mean, it was really hot. It was really high temperatures. And I said to my friend that I was traveling with, women don't really wear tank tops in public here, do they? And he said, no. And I said, and me wearing a tank top immediately singles me out. And he said, yeah. And I said, I I look American. And he said, yeah, you do. And I said, and that's sort of synonymous with a loose woman of loose morals. And he said, yeah. And I said, why didn't you tell me? And he said, well, I didn't want to, you know, control what you wore or make you feel a certain way about yourself. That's an interesting example, too, because here I was seeing him not telling me as a transgression. And he was he said, no, actually, my intent was to do something nice. So, of course, then we had to talk about that. No, in the future, please let me know because I don't want to be presenting myself in a way that ultimately doesn't work for me in the long run. Or at least give me that choice, you know? So, what are the norms in this situation that I might be violating? And how can I be respectful of the people around me, too? But we also get to ask the question of the culture, is this really a healthy norm? Should I really listen to this norm? Maybe we need to change this norm. Maybe this is a bad norm. Like, let's all smoke on airplanes. (laughs) I was camping in Redwood National Forest with a friend of mine. You notice a lot of my best lessons are learned in nature, and that's no accident. But anyway, we're camping, and in the next campsite over, we hear this elder gentleman go, Ow! 
a darn tree tripped me. <laughs> we got a good chuckle out of that because if you know anything about redwood trees, they have been around a long, long, long time. Some redwood trees are older than they were born before Jesus. Let's just put it that way. Centuries. And we're camping in these giant icons of our biomass. I mean, <laughs> there is so much presence and knowledge and wisdom in these trees. And it's been there not harming anyone, just standing there for centuries. And this guy comes along and trips over the root and blames the tree <laughs> that the tree did something to him. And like I said, this guy was in the twilight years of his life, and I thought to myself, wow, he's reached that age without learning this lesson that I'm teaching you now. Did that tree happen to him? Of course not. Of course it was his own inattention. Or whatever. Could have been, you know, any number of things. Maybe he was distracted by... He saw his grandchild getting ready to go, go too close to the fire. And that's why he tripped over the tree. <laughs> why can't you just trip over a tree? Why has there got to be blame? Why you got to shame? Roots happen. Now, I can hear some of you out there going, yeah, I know this. I know about confirmation bias. And I think we don't take seriously enough how strong this survival mechanism is. We are first and foremost programmed to survive. And if we don't get a handle on that, if we don't drive that car, if that survival car is driving us, we're going to be living in survival mode our whole lives. But if we learn how to drive the survival car, how to make that in service to us, then we can individually and collectively evolve into thriving, joyful, reasoned joy. So here's the steps. First, we have to recognize that our body had a fight or flight response. We can recognize that because we either had a feeling of anger and aggression or maybe fear and anxiety but something was detected to be a threat. And then we say, ah, I have detected a threat. Let me examine what that threat is. First of all, am I responding proportionately to the threat? If I'm overfeeling, that's a good sign that I'm bringing my past into this. And I should probably examine that first before I start blaming the person in front of me. Or is my culture teaching me to have some kind of a bias going into this situation where I'm seeing a threat where there isn't a threat? Has that been programmed into me, a confirmation bias? And then get curious, not furious, but say, uh, excuse me, is this what you're doing? Or what do you think you're doing? What was your intent? What did you mean by that? We're so concerned with, there's a threat. Who's the predator? Who's the prey? You're threatening me. No, I'm not. You're threatening me. 
I'm not threatening you. You're threatening me. Well, let's stop talking about you and me and let's start talking about the threat. This is what I think is happening. Oh, let's negotiate the threat. Well, I don't think that's threatening. Well, can I explain to you why, from my experience and my perspective, that seems threatening? Oh, I never thought about it like that before. Yeah, I can alter my behavior. I can do that for you. So let's say your impression is, I'm being attacked a good bit of the time. This world is a dark, cruel place. But if you do this analysis and you say to yourself, oh, okay, this percentage is me bringing my past experience into the situation, and this percentage is my culture programming me to see a threat that isn't there, and this percentage is a misunderstanding that requires communication, all of a sudden, now, the amount of threat you're experiencing in the world is a fraction of what it was before. That's the part that you do have control over, and you do have a responsibility to have control over. Imagine if we all did that work, and then we all brought it to the table and said, I think this is a threat. What do you think? Instead of, you're threatening me. I'm not threatening you. You're threatening me. (laughs) Or even, no, no, there are no threats. When someone says to me, you're appearing threatening, the first thing I say is, thanks for letting me know. I want to support a person expressing what their truth is to me. And then I'll ask for more information. What are you seeing as a threat? And then I use my intelligence, reason, and logic to say, hmm, gosh, you're absolutely right. I didn't look at it that way. I am being threatening. Thanks for letting me know. Or, yeah, I see it differently. I see how you're seeing it that way, but I see it differently. Let me tell you how I see it. And thanks for letting me know. So we could have that conversation. Or, Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's all you, because that is not what's happening here. But thanks for letting me know. Just because someone says, you're threatening me, you don't have to go like, oh, I'm sorry. I must be. That's what you said. That's your truth. I'm threatening you. I must be threatening you. You don't necessarily have to accept blame because someone's throwing it at you. You can say, oh, thanks for letting me know. Tell me more. And then say, yeah, that is totally not what was going on there. I'm inside my own head. And I know that this intent or agenda or motivation that you're attributing to me does not exist. So unless you can point to evidence in the real world that I've actually caused you harm. Yeah. Because there are people that will assume that you are a threat just because of who you are, not because of what you did. So... Negotiating and communicating also means not just immediately accepting blame. It means not immediately throwing blame, but also not immediately accepting blame. Now, of course, we have laws that in a democracy, it's all of us deciding that's harmful. And then you must obey the law or work to change the law. That's how democracy works. 
So there are some things you can point to and say, yeah, no, we all got together and agreed this is a threat. In fact, we so agree this is a threat that if you do this behavior, there will be consequences for you. And that's not you being attacked. That's you receiving the consequences of your choices. Oh, but this is so confusing. I have to be thinking about what's going on in my body and my emotions, and then I have to uh, parcel out what's my past and what's my present and what's my culture, and then I have to communicate with the other person. Yes, that's what you have to do. Or you can continue to live in a war zone of your own and your culture's making. Or you can break free and live in a peace zone in Amy Lunaland. So your home play for this week, not homework, but home play, is to catch yourself when you're having a fight or flight response and to ask yourself the question, what's the me factor? What's the cultural factor? And what's the other person's truth? Get curious, not furious, and have a conversation. Remember conversations? (laughs) For understanding and civility? Yeah, do that. And remember, make choices for voices of intelligence and heart. Till next time.